Hello all, Happy New Year, and I hope that everybody's had nice holidays. Are there still some hangovers floating about? They get worse and they last longer the older that you get. I found this out. Although I've worked all over these holidays, so I've managed to escape it this year. This is Paul, the true crime enthusiast, starting the new year off with more of the same, thanking you all for joining me here and looking forward so much to 2018 so I can bring you lots more of the obscure and the unfamiliar cases that the UK has to offer. The chalkboard on the fridge is still ever full, so no worries there, and the podcast may get a tweak or two, but no massive changes. I'm happy with how it flows really, and it seems to go down pretty well, judging by the mostly very kind iTunes reviews and responses that I've had. So if it works, don't bugger about with it, I think. I also want to say a special thank you to both Tyler, Beck and the team at the Minds of Madness podcast and Mike at the Murder Mile podcast who both very kindly allowed me to record a special message to use on their respective holiday episodes. I hope you've heard them because they're both great. If you haven't already heard them, please take the time to check them out. The episodes from each are absolutely brilliant and it was a pleasure and a privilege to be approached and included alongside some truly fantastic other podcasts who did the same for them. I may just extend the same offer back to these guys and more next Christmas. As I've said before, I have some guest written episodes coming up in the next couple of weeks from some brilliant writers. I'm very excited by that and I hope you'll all enjoy the cases. And the offer is there. Anybody with any good ideas for cases that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, please feel free to get in touch. I'm not hard to find. This is something that I'm keen to do more of this year for a bit of a change. But one thing that definitely won't change is what I started doing last year on the podcast, which is recommending and shouting out some great podcasts, blogs or websites. And this week, the first of the year, I'm recommending the True Crime Files. This is an absolutely fantastic website and a blog that focuses upon all things true crime. It reviews true crime books, hosts guest pieces that cover true crime cases from authors from the true crime community that may already be familiar names to you. There's articles about unsolved murders and disappearances. And the author, Christine, puts out her own articles and runs a very active blog, as well as offering editing services for an aspiring true crime writer. What more do you want? So please head over and have a look at it. Check out thetruecrimefiles.com. It looks very slick and the content's well put together. It's dead easy to navigate and it's very, very interesting. The host can also be found as a very active poster on Twitter and Facebook under the same moniker. And if you don't already follow the True Crime Files, then go check it out and see if you're as impressed as I am constantly whenever I read it. I'm sure you will be, and I'm delighted to be doing a guest piece for the page very soon. So the case I've opted to begin 2018 with is the second two-part episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. A couple of months ago, in an early episode which was actually the first two-part one that I did, the case of the Stockwell Strangler Kenneth Erskine was looked at. This is an example of one of the UK serial murderers who are not as familiar and headline-grabbing as names such as Sutcliffe or The Wests or Shipman. There are several cases of note that might not be instantly as familiar as these. That's what we like on the True Crime Enthusiast. So the case, described in a two-part episode, This Week and Next, is one of them. The case goes back to the early half of 1993, when fear struck London as a killer stalked its streets and targeted the homosexual community over a three-month period and took the lives of several men in a horrific catalogue of murder. For the simple reason that the killer had decided to become a killer, 
for a New Year's resolution. Please be advised that this week's episode does feature disturbing and graphic content, although it's integral to the story. So with that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast as we take a look back at the case, which was sensationalised by the tabloid press at the time, of the Gay Slayer. The telephone call to the newsroom of the Sun newspaper in London was brief, anonymous and chilling. A gruff man's voice with a London accent told a reporter, I have murdered a man, Vicarage Crescent in Battersea. I'm calling you because I'm worried about his dogs. I want them to be let out. It would be cruel for them to be stuck there. They need food and water. I tied him up and I killed him and I cleaned the flat afterwards. I did it. It was my New Year resolution to kill a human being. Is that of any interest to you? He was a homosexual and into kinky sex. You like that kind of thing, don't you? The man then hung up. This short telephone call was to herald the start of a nightmare that was felt throughout London's gay community in the early months of 1993. That was to lead to a mass police hunt for a man who had made it his New Year's resolution to become a serial killer and one who was to taunt police and cause the horrific deaths of several men before being caught. 45-year-old Peter Walker had moved to London from his home city of Liverpool many years before and he'd worked in theatre and show business for his whole life, mainly in one or another of London's West End shows. Living alone with his Labrador named Bessie and German Shepherd named Sammy in a comfortable and fashionable flat in Vicarage Crescent in Battersea, he'd worked his way up through the business, starting as a backing dancer, and then he'd become a choreographer on many West End hit musicals, such as Chess or the Pirates of Penzance. By the early months of 1993, Walker's professional, disciplined and fastidious approach to his work in life had led him to be working on the smash hit musical City of Angels, where he'd worked his way up again into the role of assistant director. But where he was not as disciplined was in his personal life. Peter had been openly gay since his early 20s and made no secret of the fact that he preferred casual sexual encounters rather than any long-term relationships with a regular partner. He had developed a fetish for rough and extreme sadomasochistic sex and enjoyed being restrained and severely beaten and it was commonly known amongst his friends and colleagues that he would often spend his free evenings trawling some of London's well-known gay hotspots, more often than not taking a partner home for the evening to indulge in this, although Peter had contracted the HIV virus some years before. One of Peter's regular haunts was a popular gay pub at the time called the Culhern, which was located on the corner of Culhern Road and Old Brompton Road in south-west London. The pub is still there today, although it's renamed the Pembroke now. It had a reputation from the 1970s onwards as a leather bar, and the majority of its clientele used to wear colour-coded handkerchiefs depending on their masochistic preferences, dominant or submissive which made cruising easier and to avoid any misunderstandings. Very similar to the Al Pacino film Cruising, if you've seen it. Recommend it, it's very good. The pub was also a sometimes haunt of well-known clientele, Freddie Mercury and Rupert Everett amongst others, and even serial killer Dennis Nilsson was an occasional visitor there before he was arrested for murder in 1983. Sure you all know Dennis Nilsson is? The pub even gets a mention in the song Hanging Around by the band The Stranglers. 
So as you can imagine, it's a very popular place, and for a popular place, it was always busy. Peter Walker used to frequent the pub regularly, and on the 8th of March 1993, he went out to see if there was a willing and dominating partner he could meet. One man that he was taken with did make eye contact with him, and Peter tried a trick that had worked for him before to be able to start talking to someone who'd caught his eye. He went over and accidentally spilled a drink over him. This got him talking to the man at the bar, and quickly after saying sorry, Peter begged to be chastised for doing so, offering the man the use of his flat to do just this. The man didn't need any further invitation, but instead of leading Peter out through the main door, the man instead made a point of ushering him through a side door, one that was not covered by CCTV. The pair then made their way back to Peter's flat. Peter had no realisation at that moment that he had just spent his final night alive and had left the pub with his killer. It was the next morning that the Sun newsroom received the chilling telephone call and they contacted police. On the basis of this, police went around to Peter's flat and despite repeated knocking got no answer, although they did hear dogs barking inside. A decision to force their way in was made and at first nothing seemed out of place. The flat was comfortable, clean and tidy and the dogs were sealed in the living room. But when officers got to the bedroom, they were met with the macabre sight. Lying on the four-poster bed in a spread-eagle position was the naked body of Peter Walker. His wrists and ankles showed deep marks where they'd been tied to each corner of the bed tightly with cord, although the cord had been removed and a plastic carrier bag was tied tightly over his head. He had various whip marks and bruises all over his body and his pubic hair had been burned. Lying next to him on the bed were two teddy bears that had been arranged one on top of the other in the 69 position. There was also a leather dog lead that was later found at post-mortem to match many of the whip marks on Peter's body. Detectives were called to the scene and a forensic examination was carried out to see if this had been murder, as the caller had intimated, or was the result of a sex game gone wrong. When the carrier bag was removed, Peter was found to have knotted condoms forced into his nostrils and mouth, further restricting his breathing. Realising that someone else had to be involved, because there's no way Peter could have done that to himself and someone had to have tied him up, and that the caller had claimed to have murdered Walker, a check was made to see if anything had been stolen. Nothing seemed to be missing from the flat except for Peter's cash card and a check of bank transactions revealed that someone had withdrawn £200 from his bank in the hours after he was determined to have died. Police now knew they were dealing with a case of murder but they had no forensic evidence left by the killer to go on. There were no fingerprints, no DNA evidence and the flat was clean and tidy apart from the bedroom where Peter was found. The investigation into his death was hampered from the off though, as police were met with an air of distrust from the gay community, many of whom considered that police did not take crimes against gay people as serious as other crimes due to homophobia and prejudice, and therefore they did not trust or like the police. It was also not helped because the day after Peter Walker's body was found, a ruling had been made in the House of Lords that S&M, even between consenting adults, was illegal. 
So when it was established quite early on in the investigation that this was Peter's particular fetish, the investigation was met with a wall of silence as many gay men involved in this scene were afraid to come forward as they believed that they may risk prosecution. All that was managed to be established was that Peter had been seen in the Cologne on the night he was killed, and it was almost certainly here where he had met and left with his killer. The murder had received not much national publicity, and the investigation was still continuing, when on the 30th of May 1993, another body was discovered. Christopher Dunn was articulate, intelligent and well-liked, but could have been described as a man with two separate lives. By day, 37-year-old Christopher dressed in a suit for his job at Harlesden Library and was the heir of respectability, but by night he changed into an alternate persona. The nighttime Christopher liked to dress in tight black leather and studded leather dog collars and make his way around London's gay nightlife with a separate set of friends and acquaintances from his day-to-day life. He was heavily into S&M bordering on the extreme and was again another regular patron of the Cologne pub. On the 28th of May he went there and with echoes of Peter Walker got talking to a man who caught his eye across the bar. Christopher went over and began chatting and before long he and his new companion were in a taxi heading for his flat in Byron Road, Wealdstone, North West London, again having left through the side door of the pub that had no CCTV coverage. When Christopher didn't show up for work the next morning, and had uncharacteristically failed to phone in sick or to explain his absence, his friends and colleagues became worried. It was that out of character for him that they decided to contact police, who duly went around to his flat and forced the door. Again, a hideous sight was to greet them. Christopher was found lying naked on his bed, apart from a riveted leather and metal ring harness and studded belt. Like Peter Walker, Christopher had been tied tightly hand and foot at some point, although no bindings were found at the scene, and again had a carrier bag placed over his head. Four large mirrors had been placed at strategic points around the bed and the room, ensuring that wherever anyone stood in the room, the scene on the bed was reflected back at them and they could not miss it. The rest of the flat was otherwise undisturbed, and again nothing appeared to have been taken. A post-mortem later determined that the cause of death was due to asphyxiation, but also noted was another bizarre injury. Aside from the various whip marks and contusions on his body, Christopher's testicles and scrotum had been burned. There were clear signs of them having been burned or scorched with either a lighted match or a cigarette lighter. Perhaps because of his fetish for extreme sadomasochistic sex, Detectives concluded that this was not a case of murder after all, but rather the results of a sex game gone wrong, and that Dunn had perhaps died by his own hand. As a result of this, all inquiries into his death stopped, and no connection with Peter Walker's death was made. Less than a week later, another man, again a patron of the Colburn pub, was to meet a similar fate. American Perry Bradley III was the international sales director for a US adhesives firm and had arrived in Britain from his native Texas in 1990. He came from a wealthy family, with his father being prominent American politician Perry Bradley Jr., a well-known political Democratic Party fundraiser. And Perry was well-liked and considered good-looking. His pastimes included golf, water skiing and appreciating historical culture through visiting the odd old stately home. 
What few of his friends and colleagues knew was that Perry was a gay man and his family were to steadfastly deny this to be true. Perry lived in a flat in Kensington within walking distance of the Colon and was like Peter Walker and Christopher Dunn a regular visitor to the pub. Although unlike these two, he was not into the S&M scene. On the 4th of June, Perry was in the Colon when in what was fast becoming a familiar yet still unrecognised pattern, a man at the bar caught his eye after making eye contact with him. After heading across to chat to the object of his desire, having some drinks and some serious flirtation, Perry and this man left the Colon and walked towards Perry's Kensington flat. When they arrived at the flat, Perry was expecting a normal sexual encounter but his guest expressed the will that he wanted to tie Perry up, claiming that he was unable to perform sexually unless bondage and restraints were involved. Perry did not initially fancy this as it wasn't his thing, but lust must have got the better of common sense, as he soon caved in and consented, and before long was tied hand up hand and foot and laid face down on his bed. When he was trussed up, Perry's guest changed his demeanour. After whipping and beating his victim, Perry's guest told the helpless man that he was a thief looking for money and he demanded the PIN number for Perry's cash card, threatening to burn his testicles and scrotum with a cigarette lighter if this wasn't forthcoming. The frightened Perry was eager to cooperate, telling the man, I'm quite happy to give you anything you know. Perry even offered out of fear to go to a cash point with the man, but was told this wasn't necessary. He was then told to make himself comfortable as it was going to be a long night. Perry's guest spent hours at the flat, in no rush to leave, and instead made himself at home, all the while with the helpless Perry still trussed up on his bed. He was even to fall asleep at one point, and once he was asleep, he was never to wake up. Perry's guest strangled him with a ligature. He used such force to throttle the defenceless man that the ligature broke the skin. But his killer still didn't leave following the murder. He instead calmly cooked himself a meal ate it and spent the rest of the night in the flat listening to the radio. At some point, he placed a doll on top of the body. He then finally left early in the morning and blended in with the morning London crowds so as to not draw undue attention to himself. Perry's body was discovered later that day and although a post-mortem was to show that this was a clear case of murder and the standard £200 had been found to have been taken from the victim's bank account and a further £100 from his wallet, detectives investigating still did not link this death to the deaths of Peter Walker and Christopher Dunn. The death of Peter Walker was being investigated by a separate incident room, and the death of Christopher Dunn had been ruled as a sex game gone wrong. There had been no coordination between detectives at this point, so they had no idea that they were hunting a monster who by now had killed three men in the most chilling and horrific of ways. But that was soon to change. After Perry's murder, the third such similar death in a relatively short time frame of just over two months, it's reported that only serious consideration was given to the murders of Peter and Perry as being linked. There was no mention of Christopher as being part of the series which I consider really surprising. I know back in 1993 there may not have been the technology to as easily link up with different divisions and incident rooms, but this seems a serious lack of intelligence shared and consideration to look at a bigger picture here, don't you think? Two days after Perry's murder, however, a call was received by police that made them consider that all three deaths were linked. 
In the telephone call that police received, the caller indicated that he had been responsible for the murders of Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn and Perry Bradley, and that it was his intention to become a serial killer. Can you imagine how chilling a call that must have been? That's like the plot out of some sensationalist movie or TV series, that, isn't it? The man told the detectives that he had read a book by former FBI agents, the late Robert Ressler, sure that's a name you true crime buffs will be familiar with, entitled The Crime Classification Manual, and he had used this as a guide for exactly how many he needed to kill to qualify as a serial killer. The man said, Are you still interested in the death of Peter Walker? Why have you stopped the investigation? Doesn't the death of a homosexual man mean anything? I know what it takes to become one. You have to kill one over four to qualify, don't you? I plan to kill five. I've already killed three. It started as an exercise. I wanted to see if I could get away with it, to see if it could really be done. Have you found Christopher Dunn yet? I killed him too, but I hadn't seen anything in the papers. This was the first time that Christopher's name had appeared as being connected to the possible list. Again, still unbelievable to me. Just how many people were dying in circumstances a bit dodgy like that at the time. Enough to not make people bat an eyelid. At least to circulate details of the death to other forces or divisions, surely. The caller then went on to prove that he was the killer by describing accurately the interior of Perry Bradley's Kensington flat and describing in detail how he had killed him, even down to fine details such as the fact that he had turned family photographs to face the wall before strangling him, and the position he'd left the body in, with crossed ankles on a large blue bedsheet. There was no mistaking now in police minds. They were talking to a serial killer. The caller then hung up as his message was complete. His call had lasted less than a minute, and there had been scarce time to be able to attempt to make a trace. But the call was, of course, recorded by police. The man who so often frequented the Cullern as a hunting ground was now fired up and well established into his modus operandi and into his killing cycle. And just three days after killing Perry Bradley, he returned to the Cullern and chose yet another victim. Just three days later. 33-year-old animal lover Andrew Collier was a warden at a residential home in Dalston Road Stoke Newington, North London, and like the other three men, he was a gay man who was a regular face at the Cullern pub. Andrew was safety conscious, and his flat at the residential home in which he lived and worked was fitted with several secure mortise and yale type locks, plus barred and reinforced windows on the inside. But all of safety consciousness went out of the window on the evening of the 7th of June. Andrew was spending the evening at the Cullern pub when the similar pickup pattern ensued. A man at the bar caught his eye, and like Peter Walker, he made his way over to him and deliberately spilled some of his drink over the man, using this as an excuse to get talking to the stranger who he'd taken a liking to. Within an hour of the first words exchanged between the pair, they were both heading back to Andrew's flat, where once arrived, Andrew and his guest were having a drink when they heard the sound of a violent disturbance coming from the street outside, which police attended. Both men went to the window to have a nose at what was going on outside, and Andrew's guest inadvertently touched one of the iron railings whilst doing so. Once the disturbance was under control and the fuss had died down, and more importantly, police had gone, 
Andrew willingly allowed himself to be tied up, expecting an extreme sadomasochistic sex session. That wasn't what he got. Andrew was tortured in much the same way as Perry had been, as Peter and Christopher had been also, and he was soon dead, again throttled by strangulation. He had refused to give up his PIN number for his cash card, and had suffered for this unbelievably. But when his killer had searched his belongings for a PIN number, and instead discovered a letter informing that Andrew Collier was HIV positive, disgust and fury took over and the killer committed an even further obscene and horrific act. Now the following contains a disturbing depiction of animal cruelty. Again, it's not placed into shock or upset, which I'm sure it will, but as is now familiar on the podcast, I can't apologise for detail that portrays an accurate description of the case. It's integral because it gives an insight into the mind and drive of this killer. Andrew's killer grabbed hold of Andrew's pet cat, Millie, tied a length of the sash cord he had brought to the scene to strangle and restrain his victim with around its neck and tied the other end to the door handle and then heartlessly tossed the defenceless creature over the bedroom door, hanging it. It's unclear if this act was committed after Andrew had been killed or he was made to watch it happen to increase his terror. Once dead, the animal's carcass was then placed in an obscene position on Andrew's dead naked body. Both his penis and the cat's tail had condoms placed over them, and then the cat's tail was placed in Andrew's mouth, and his penis was placed in the cat's mouth. The killer then looked back and admired his handiwork, and again went through his now usual ritual of cleaning up the scene to remove traces of himself, then remained in the property through the night in order to leave with mourning crowds and not draw attention to himself. He had just killed a man and a defenceless animal sadistically and having stolen just £70 from his victim. But when he left in the morning, he was to find out much later that he had not been as thorough in his clean-up as he usually was. Just a few hours later, Andrew's body was discovered in the shocking way that it had been left. And although, unlike the other crime scenes, his flat was ransacked, no obvious clues had been left behind but a forensic examination of the scene was to find a minute portion of an unidentified fingerprint on one of the iron railings across the window. The following day, a telephone call was made to the Arbor Square police station in London's East End, which was the station that detectives investigating the murder of Andrew Collier were based from. It was again from a gruff-voiced male with a London accent, and it was this telephone call that was to make police confirm that they had a serial killer stalking London's gay community, and that the caller had been responsible for the murder of four men. The caller again stated that he was responsible for the four murders, and restated that he was planning to kill at least five victims. This time he also added, I will do another. If you don't stop me, it will be one a week. I pissed myself when I read that I was an animal lover. I don't want anybody to get any wrong ideas about me. I am not an animal lover. That's why I killed the cat. I thought I'd give you lot something to think about. I will keep going until I'm caught. I will do another one. I have always dreamed of doing the perfect murder. Following the death of Peter Walker, the Sun newspaper, who had received the telephone call that had alerted police to the killer, had run a story in which they had referred to the killer as an animal lover as he had expressed concern for the welfare of Peter Walker's dogs. 
He had just shown in the most horrific of ways just how much of an animal lover he wasn't. Again he hung up after less than a minute, and again no time to attempt to make a trace on the call had been made. But following this call, all four deaths were officially linked, and overall command of the linked investigation fell to Detective Chief Superintendent Ken John, working out of the Kensington Police Station. As it went public, the press had a field day, and coined sensational and, in the case of a certain tabloid newspaper, offensive monikers for the unknown killer. He is referred to in the press most commonly as the Gay Slayer, which is the title of this episode, obviously, but was also referred to by at least one newspaper as the Fairy Liquidator, which I consider is an idiotic and offensive moniker to the gay community. For those of you listening who don't see the relevance of this moniker, Fairy is often a slur for the gay community, and Fairy Liquid is a popular UK brand of washing-up liquid detergents. So that's the tabloids trying to be clever there, and instead just coming out offensive really. But offensive or not, the revelation that there was a serial killer hunting London's gay community spread panic and fear through it. Many people who had dates with strangers cancelled them, and even self-protection groups amongst the community were formed. Police investigations into the deaths of all four men had revealed little connection between the four victims, apart from the fact they were all homosexual men, they were of differing ages and looks, not all shared the same sexual preferences and fetishes, they all had different careers and they all lived in different parts of London. But detectives did discover one connection through speaking to the murdered men's friends and colleagues. All four of them were regular visitors to the Cologne. It was also established to near certainty that at least Peter Walker, Perry Bradley and Andrew Collier had been in the pub on the night they died, but it could not be established with certainty that Christopher had been there. It therefore stood to reason that there was a good chance that this was where each man had met their killer. Was he himself a regular patron of the Cologne, and perhaps homosexual himself? But before police had a real chance to make any serious progress on the now joint murder inquiry, a fifth murder was to happen. It was, thankfully, however, this fifth killing that was to lead to the capture of the gay slayer. 43-year-old Maltese-born chef Emmanuel Spiteri was another regular face at the Cullern, familiar for his slight build and his penchant for wearing black leather bondage clothing and motorcycle boots. Emmanuel was also to be regularly seen with a handkerchief hanging from his rear pocket, which gave the telltale indicator that his preference was to be dominated. Emmanuel lived in a bedsit flat in Hither Green Lane in Catford in South London, and on the evening of Saturday 12th of June, just five days after the horrific murder of Andrew Collier, Emmanuel dressed in his usual black leather clothing and went for a night out to the Cologne. Somewhere that evening, Emmanuel met the same man that Peter Walker, Christopher Dunn, Perry Bradley and Andrew Collier had all met, although it's unclear whether Emmanuel met him in the Cologne pub or afterwards in Earl's Court Underground Station. What is clear is that the two men must have spoken to each other and were together that evening, because pretty soon they were heading back to the block in Hither Green Lane where Emmanuel lived. Once the two men were back at Emmanuel's flat, the now familiar routine got underway. Emmanuel, who was wary as news of the murders in the gay community was beginning to leak out, did not initially wish to be tied up for a sadomasochistic sex session. 
despite this being his usual preference. He must have been worn down by his partner's persistence, or perhaps lust had again got the better of caution, for he consented eventually and was soon tied to his bed hand and foot. He was again whipped and beaten, and then the stranger he had brought home demanded his pin number for his cash card. But despite the abuse he had suffered at the hands of this man, and even threats to kill him if he refused, Emmanuel refused to give his pin number away, instead bravely telling the man, Do whatever you're going to do, you will just have to kill me. The man did just that. Emmanuel had a ligature fastened around his neck and was garroted. The man then completed his usual routine. He spent the night at Emmanuel's bedsit, watching television and removing all traces of his presence. But as with each murder in the series, there was a twist to this murder also. Sometime during the night, furniture and papers were piled into the centre of the room and a fire was set. Although whether this was a sense of the killer just adding a macabre touch to his latest murder, as he had done with the pet cat, the mirrors and the teddy bears in his previous killings, or was an attempt to destroy any evidence he may have left is unclear. Regardless, the fire soon petered out and caused minimal damage. Emmanuel's body was discovered on Tuesday 15th of June, and this was again following a telephone call to police, just the day after he'd been murdered. It was again from a gruff-voiced male with a London accent, and the caller claimed responsibility for yet another murder, and told police to look for the body at the scene of a fire in South London. He then went on in a goading and gloating voice to reiterate that he was the killer of now five men, saying, I have read a lot of books on serial killers. I think it's from four people that the FBI classes serial, so I may stop now I've done five. I just wanted to see if it could be done. I'll probably never re-offend again. He rang off before giving police an exact address, so the search was on for the fifth victim. But early in the evening of 15th of June 1993, a landlady in Catford rang police to inform that she had found one of her tenants dead in his flat, and before long police were at the scene of Emmanuel Spiteri's murder. One look at the scene was enough to confirm that the gay slayer had struck again. That same evening, a press conference was held in which Detective Superintendent Ken John confirmed that the murders of now five gay men were being linked as a series, both pathologically and forensically. He also made an appeal to the killer directly, telling him, Speak to me. I am willing to speak to you. This is something we can talk about. Enough is enough. Enough pain, anxiety and tragedy. Give yourself up, whatever terms, whatever you dictate, whatever the time, to me or my colleagues. By that time, police had discovered the lead that would ultimately lead to the capture of the gay slayer. When Emmanuel's last movements were traced, it was found that he would have had to take a number of trains to get from Earl's Court to Catford, and one of these stations was Charing Cross, where Emmanuel would have had to have changed from an underground train to an overground train. The platforms and concourse at Charing Cross were covered with recently fitted CCTV and a search of CCTV from the night Emmanuel died was obtained that soon identified him on his journey home at about 10.30pm and he was travelling along with another man. From the CCTV footage, although it wasn't of the best quality, the man appeared well built, around 15 stone and over 6 feet tall. 
He had short cropped dark hair receding at the temples and was wearing jeans, trainers and a short dark jacket. He also appeared to be carrying a small bag or rucksack. So the images were grainy but it was the best lead police had so far. Was this the gay slayer caught on CCTV? So police now had a decision to make. Although they weren't the clearest of pictures, it was possible that someone might recognise this man if they were released in an appeal. He may be instantly recognised and captured, but he also may recognise himself and then take steps to alter his appearance or go to ground completely, perhaps even take his own life and escape justice. After weighing these options up, it was decided to go public and on the 24th of June, a still of the CCTV showing Emmanuel and the Mystery Man plus an appeal poster that showed a photo-fit impression of the man created from an analysis of the still and a sketch was released to the public. It did generate many calls, and although none could provide a name, some calls were received from people claiming that they had indeed seen and talked to this man in the Cologne pub. They could further add to the description of the man that he had dirty and discoloured teeth and a strong, gruff London accent. A psychological profile of the killer had been obtained by this time, detailing the killer as very forensically aware and a violent, powerful fantasist who killed with premeditation and meticulous planning. He showed remarkable calmness, discipline and self-control in surroundings that were unfamiliar to him and could kill effectively and was extremely thorough in removing any clues or traces of himself from the scene of his killings. He took away any bindings or ligatures that he'd used, he wiped surfaces clean and he removed any material objects he had touched at the scene, although he had slipped up at least once at the scene of Andrew Collier's murder. He was considered to be a social chameleon as he'd managed to lure five men away to their deaths, so he must have been able to, on the surface at least, appear non-threatening and had attracted little attention to himself so he must have been able to blend in. He had a strong desire for infamy and publicity, and this was his motivation for contacting police and the newspapers. He wanted to be regarded as a somebody, and for police to see him as a worthy opponent. Reveling in his growing notoriety, this man clearly wanted an audience, and he wanted to shock. That's why Peter Walker's body had been arranged so, why the mirrors had been placed around Christopher Dunn's bed, and why a fire had been set at Emmanuel Spiteri's flat. He also closely followed the media reports of his killings and responded to how the press portrayed him, which was why he killed Andrew Collier's cat. He didn't want to be ignored or have his handiwork missed in some way. When Christopher Dunn had not been considered part of the series, he contacted police to inform them that yes, he indeed was. Recognition was important to this man, and more than one psychologist claimed that he did not fear capture, or he may even give himself up as long as it was on his own terms, feeding to his feeling of maintaining control. There may have also been some sexual ambiguity with him. A killer who targets gay men could be understandably considered to be a member of the gay community himself. But this may not have been the case. He may be pretending to be homosexual to simply lure his victims, and considered the gay community as rich and easy pickings, and a community that may solicit less sympathy from the general public and police. If he was homophobic, then gay men may have deliberately been his targets, but it was possible that he targeted them because he saw something in them that resonated with feelings he had himself and was uncomfortable with, perhaps closet homosexuality. 
The level of forensic awareness the killer had also showed that this was a man who had offended before and who was an experienced criminal. It was too high a level and too great a level of control to have been a first offence. He enjoyed what he was doing thoroughly, and if he wasn't stopped, he would continue to kill more as the murders were escalating. He had killed three times in just eight days, and in what of course is an understatement, this meant that he was a very, very dangerous man. By the time nearly a month had passed, on the 21st of July, the police were at a loss. Although both the incident rooms and Gallup, the Gay London Policing Organisation, which is now formed into the LGBT anti-violence charity Gallup, who were working closely with the investigation, had received many calls following the release of the CCTV images, but they'd not got the response that they wanted, which was an identification of the man seen with Emmanuel. But there had also been no further murders since Emmanuel's more than a month before and the killer had not been in touch either. Had he seen himself and gone to ground as detectives had feared, or had he even perhaps taken his own life? Police were to find out that very day, because a man walked into a solicitor's office 30 miles away from London in the town of Southend-on-Sea in Essex, and claimed that he needed a solicitor because he was the unidentified man in the CCTV video. And that's where we leave the tale of the Gay Slayer for this week, with the conclusion coming in next week's True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Obviously, really, it's hardly like I'd leave a cliffhanger like that and then cover a completely different case next week, is it? I do hope you stick around to hear it, because it is quite a tale, albeit a bit disturbing, and I hope even more so that Googling it doesn't get the better of you. Although I wouldn't blame you for doing so, I know if it was me I'd have to, I'm like that, but I'd still be back to hear the conclusion. Because it's a bit of a complex tale with a lot to tell, I thought it warranted a two-part episode, so writing and researching it has kept me busy over the holiday period. It's been the usual pleasure of bringing it to you today, and I look forward to bringing you the second part next week also. If you want to discuss it, then please feel free to do so on the social media channels where I can be found as the True Crime Enthusiast, and I'll post up a thread on the Facebook podcast discussion group. Thanks as always for joining me, I wish you a happy and safe week, and I'll catch you again next True Crime Tuesday. So from Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, take it easy guys, and goodbye for now.